Um, We all want to be happy. In fact, I'd go further. further. We live to be happy. We organize our lives in the big picture and the day-to-day details around trying to be happy. French mathematician and all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man. I wonder what you think of that statement. A bit much, maybe. But just trace your mind back, even over the decisions that you've made so far this morning. The coffee machine going on before you did anything else the slab of butter or jam on your weekend toast, the extra two minutes in the hot shower, taking the car to church, the people you chose to chat to as you arrived and where you chose to sit. We want to be happy. We live to be happy. It's not the only factor determining our decisions, but it's a big one. We're always hunting for happiness both in the big picture and in the day-to-day details of our lives. We began a new series last week, as Jill was reminding us just now, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, along with Job, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Song of Songs. And we saw last week, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, um, that Ecclesiastes, in chapter 1, verse 1, is the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And we didn't go there with the children in, but but it's it's a frame narrative. Um, The words of this teacher uh, go from halfway through chapter 1, starting in 1 verse 12, to halfway through chapter 12, uh, finishing in about verse 7. Um, And the words of the teacher are recorded by someone outside the story, a a narrator figure who introduces things in 1 verses 1 to 11, pops up again briefly in 7, verse 27, and then concludes the book in 12, verses 8 to 14. And the teacher whose words this are, it could be Solomon himself, the physical son of David, the king of Jerusalem after David. It could be someone writing in character as Solomon, as a Solomon-like king. We're not quite sure. Um, But we saw last week that this teacher doesn't say what we would expect. They don't give a a grand theological or historical treatise, a big history of Israel, a depiction of God's glory. Rather, chapter 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Life, says this teacher, is like a breath. You blow it out of your mouth, it's there for a moment, and then it's gone. It's impossible to grasp true meaning within it. Verse 3, we work and we work and we work and we work and we so often gain so little. We're never truly satisfied. (coughs) Verse 8, there's nothing truly new. Verse 9, is it really worth getting out of bed in the morning? And then in 1, verses 12 to 14, the teacher tells us what he planned to do in light of this rather um, dispiriting reflection. 
I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. He wanted to get to the bottom of this life under the sun, to discover its meaning, to see what it was really about, to find where happiness lies. And then from verse 16 of chapter onwards, chapter 1 onwards, we see how he set out to do this. And so our first point is simply the hunt, the hunt for happiness. Uh, from chapter 1, verse 16, right through to 2, verse 11. And first stop on this hunt, the University of Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verse 17, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom. The teacher got himself an education. He headed down to the Bodleian. He applied for membership to some academic journals. He listened to world-class lectures. And he got himself an education. And he was thorough. Verse 17, he studied folly and madness, as well as wisdom. He looked at both sides of the coin. And he did so with great success. Verse 16, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. First class honours here. But what did he find? Verse 17, this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. And don't we know that to be true? We know so much more about cancer, dementia, the common cold. But we're not much closer to actually curing it. You can get yourself genetically tested to find your likelihood of developing Huntington's, Parkinson's, breast cancer. You can't stop yourself from actually getting them. Or more personally, maybe after 30 years, you finally learn of the, uh, the five-year affair your dad had with the neighbor when you were growing up. Or your mum finally gets that diagnosis for autism. But knowing the truth, it just makes the relationship harder, not easier. Or more trivially, you look up your new favorite show online and find out that one of the main characters dies. With much wisdom, comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. Understanding is not, it would seem, the route to happiness, to meaning. A sobering thought for those of us um, still paying off thousands in student debt or about to start accruing it. A sobering thought for those of us who would make uh, any sacrifice ourselves for the gospel. But when it comes to our children and their education, well, we couldn't possibly let them not have what we had. A sobering thought for those of us looking to the next thing, the next master's degree, the next PhD, the next professional qualification. Or for those of us who think, if I could just read enough Christian books, if I could learn more scripture off by heart, if I just knew the Bible better, I'd have this life thing sorted. A master's degree is not, it would seem, the route to happiness. And so our teacher moves on to the second stop of his hunt, uh, going out, out, living for the weekend. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, 
I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. The teacher gave himself up to living for pleasure, for hedonism. Swap your £20 trainers for £60 ones. Upgrade to a 50-inch TV, why not? Why to use a starter or dessert when you can have both? A bottle of wine, your new Friday night best friend. City breaks on the continent. Romantic nights in boutique hotels. Subscriptions to Netflix, Amazon Prime Video and Disney Plus. Front row tickets for Peter Kay's comeback stand-up tour. But verse 1, that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? The hangover is just as bad, whether it was a £30 bottle of wine or a £10 one. The moment on the lips, as they say, a lifetime on the hips or on the arteries. Last night's laughter only briefly numbs the deafening pain that returns as you lie in bed in the early hours. No matter how much you paid, the show will soon be over, the curtains will soon close, the holiday will soon come to an end, and no amount of photos, videos, souvenirs, social media posts will make it like you're still there. A master's degree is not the route to happiness, and neither is living for the weekend says our teacher. Now we're not. As um, Dan said in our series on money earlier this year, a particularly extravagant or lavish church, I don't think. But we'd be rash in a, in a largely well-off western city like Oxford to assume that there's no lesson for us to learn here. For me, I think, um, it's when the little luxuries of life slip into being necessities that problems arise. How would you finish these sentences? I can't get through a day without. It's Friday night and I've really earned. To unwind at the weekend, I just need living for pleasure. Living for the weekend is not the route to happiness. So the teacher on his hunt has enrolled at university. He's uh, been out, out on the town. Third stop, industry. Chapter 2, verse 4. I undertook great projects. He decided to make something of himself and of his life. He resolved to work, to apply himself to something greater than mere pleasure, to achieve something. And he went for it. Verse 4 continues. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. We were in the realm of house purchases and renovations here, allotments, gardening, extensions, getting out into nature, using your hands, doing something practical, something that will last, something that will make your little patch of earth, however small it is, a better place. And I think we're in the world of work here too, employment, professional development, career plans, promotions. And the teacher nails it again. Skim down that list of achievements right through to verse 8. Slaves, animals, silver, gold, singers, or harem. He had it all. 
as far as ancient Near Eastern culture was concerned. Money, sex, power, he had it all. He had the delights of a man's heart, verse 8. He became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before him, verse 9. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun fulfilled his every dream. And where did it leave him? With nothing. It's just sand slipping through his fingers. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so work is not the route to happiness. Making something of yourself, achieving your life's goals, won't get you to life's true meaning. There is no perfect job for you out there. No perfect house, no perfect city. Moving to London won't solve all your problems, nor will moving to Cornwall. Getting to the top of the career ladder won't satisfy you. And it won't be long after your extension's finished that something goes wrong with the new house. The Japanese knotweed will win in the end in your allotment. You'll never save the earth no matter how hard you try. But maybe you already know this. Maybe you've worked for and you've reached a fair few of your life's goals. Job you love, tick. Happy family, tick. Decent-sized house with a garden and a good postcode, tick. But it hasn't worked. It hasn't given you the peace of mind, the satisfaction in your heart that you'd always assumed that you would have when you got there. You look around at the dream house in which you now live and it just leaves you feeling a little bit empty. You sit at the top of the pecking order in the job you always wanted and you just feel a little empty. You look at the smiling photos of yourself, your friends, your family in your well-curated social media feed and it just leaves you feeling a little empty. Making something of yourself won't truly make you happy. We've seen a hunt for happiness. Next, the teacher hits the brakes on his hunt. In verses 12 to 16, he hits the brakes on his hunt. Let's read from verse 12 of chapter 2. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. We've got somewhere. Some resolution. A way forward. Wisdom is better than folly. Spiraling back round to where we began with wisdom, the teacher seems to have found something good. Go to university. Get that degree. Finish that PhD. Live wisely and live well. Wisdom is better than folly. But he carries on. Verse 40. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize 
that the same fate overtakes them both. The wise and the fool. For the end of verse 16, like the fool, the wise too must die. What causes the teacher to hit the brakes on his hunt for happiness? What's the pin that pops his balloon? It's death. You can achieve everything and more in life. But death will take it all away. Death will snatch from your hands every single thing that you have achieved, every single thing you think you own, and will give it to someone else. And death will come, no matter how fit and healthy you are now, no matter what your personal best is on Strava, no matter how, how carefully you watch your diet, death will come, and it will take it all away, and we will be left with nothing, a slab of stone, a plaque, a bench that we'll never get to sit on, if we're lucky. So verse 15. What, do I, what then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. If that sounds too bleak, perhaps we've not yet had to look death closely in the face for some of us. The teacher hits the brake on happiness. Next, he hates life. Chapter 2, verse 17 to 23. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. It's a strong reaction. I hated life. We're told two times. And in fact, this passage is packed full of emotion. Verse 20, my heart began to despair. End of verse 21, this too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Verse 22, what do people get for all the toil and anxious striving? Verse 23, all their days, their work is grief and pain. The teacher hates life. Is filled with frustration, with misery, with agony. But maybe, um, maybe he needs to be stood down, we think. Maybe this teacher isn't a, such a good king of Jerusalem, writer of wisdom literature, after all. Maybe we need someone a little, a little holier, someone who can take the highs and lows of life with a little more stoicism, a little more thankfulness. Except if we say that, then we also need to rip Job out of our Bibles, which tipex out quite a few of the Psalms, and we need to edit out Jesus. Because there'd be no place for words like Jesus's at Gethsemane in Mark 14, verse 36, or on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 46. And there'd be no place for tears like the tears he shed at Lazarus's grave or laments, like the lament he spoke over Jerusalem. If such a response as this isn't acceptable in our holy books. 
And pay, a care, pay careful attention to what the teacher says he hates. He doesn't say that he hates God. He says that he hates life. All the things he toiled for. And isn't there a fair amount to hate in this fallen world? We went there last week, but I think we should go there again today. Maybe we'll go there every week of this series. Romans 8, verse 20, Paul writes, The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We groan. Brothers and sisters, we groan because this world is not what it should be. This life is not what it should be. It was not meant to be like this. And so we groan. We rail with Job. We lament with the psalmists. We weep with Jesus. And we hate life with this teacher. But we don't end on hate. For in the final three verses, the teacher's hatred of life turns very tentatively into hope. Let's read verses 24 to 26. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's not a full answer yet, but there's a positive turn, a note of hope, be it ever so faint. For just as in chapter 1, verse 13, as we saw last week, God is, at the final moment, brought back into the picture. And in 1 verse 13, um, what a heavy burden God has laid on has given mankind. So here, God is brought back into the picture as a giver. To eat and drink and find satisfaction in your own toil is a gift from the hand of God. The teacher tells us. You can work and work and work and work. You can study and study and study and study. You can max out your credit cards on anything and everything. But to be able to enjoy any of those things, to find satisfaction in any of those things, well, that is a gift from God. Without God, there's no guarantee you will enjoy any of the things that ought to be enjoyable in your life. But with God, you can. He gives us enjoyment. He gives us satisfaction as a gift. And so the conclusion, eat, drink, and be merry. You only live once, crack open the champagne, 
it's time to party. But isn't that attitude to life condemned elsewhere in Scripture? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Think of the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Or God's prophecy against Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 22. But as one writer on these verses puts it, this isn't eat, drink, and be merry, because that's all there is. But rather eat, drink, and be merry, because there's, that's what there is. Eating, drinking, toiling. That is what our human lives are made up of. It's the substance of them. We do these things for much of our days, all of our days. And we love to think that we're bigger than that. that we've got so much to give that we'll have such an impact once the world realizes what we have to offer. But this teacher, as he has hunted for happiness, has realized not how big he is, how small he is. No matter how wise, rich, and accomplished he is, though he be the king of Jerusalem and the teacher of Israel, he's just one small man, here for little longer than a breath, lost in the futility of his own failed efforts. And he wants gently, perhaps, to take some of us down a few pegs too. Set your sights a little lower, he advises us, take your heads out of the clouds, rip up your laminated life plan, pop your hopes and dreams bubble, save yourself the quarter, midlife, three-quarter life crisis, and focus on this small and ordinary life that God has given to you in this small and consequential community with these other small and consequential people all doing small and consequential things and aim to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil. Not because that's all there is, because that's what there is here in life under the sun. And do that knowing that even this, even this finding enjoyment and satisfaction in the ordinary things, you can do only if God gives it to you. How incredibly humbling that is in a brilliant city like Oxford, filled with brilliant people, in a church filled with theological education and ministry experience, academic qualifications and professional expertise. How humbling that is. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. God's gift to us is that we might enjoy the small things, the things that make up this ordinary day-by-day human existence without making them into ultimate things, things that we can't live without, things that we think will fulfill all our wants and needs. It's simple. It's humbling. And it's also a relief, isn't it? You don't have to chase after the wind. You can give up the chase. And enjoy God's gifts to you instead. You don't need to be constantly aiming for the sky, always doing better, being better, reaching your full potential. Isn't this picture a so much more realistic take on life? And isn't that a great relief for those of us who are tired? And it's a relief too 
we don't have to be martyrs, depriving ourselves of any and every earthly pleasure, as some uh, believers down the ages have argued we should. It's okay to enjoy a good coffee, a freshly brewed cup of tea. It's okay to enjoy the snack of a well-baked biscuit, a bottle of wine over a meal with friends. It's okay to get a sense of satisfaction as you tick off the last thing on your to-do list. It's okay to come out of a meal feeling that it went really well, that you did really well. It's okay to get a good grade on your essay and to feel pleased about it. We were made to enjoy such things, and it's God's kind gift to us that we can. If this humbling embrace of the pleasures and experiences and toil of the world doesn't feel right, doesn't sound holy enough, look at the life of Jesus. He certainly spent whole nights in prayer, but it also seems like he spent whole nights at parties, quite a few of them. His first miracle stopped a party from coming to an early end in John 2. And he certainly spent time doing great things for God, teaching, performing miracles in public, of course, dying on the cross. But he also spent much time just doing life with a small bunch of followers, chatting, sharing, eating, drinking, traveling with them. Though he was the eternal son of God, the second member of the Trinity, he didn't seem to have a problem living his human life within the very ordinary limits of first century working class Palestinian society. Perhaps because he knew that ultimate gain wasn't to be found in the learning of this life, in living for the weekend, in making something of himself in human terms. Now he knew that ultimate gain was only to be found in life with his Father, in God's eternal purposes. And so he could treat this life for what it is, not trying to make too much of it, and enjoy its simple things for what they are. Hebrews 12, verse 2, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that there was life beyond the sun. And that helped him to live his life under the sun for those 33 or so years. And what a great relief that he did that for us, that he made himself nothing for us. And what a great example he is to us of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory. God. Let's pause for a minute or so for quiet reflection and prayer, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we are sorry that we so often make too much of the things of this world, of knowledge, of pleasure, of work and achievement, treating these things as if they can give us ultimate meaning, satisfaction, happiness. 
we are sorry that we also make too little of them and we make too much of ourselves with our grand desires and plans and our ambitions. We fail to see what you've put around us, the small things of daily life, the simple pleasures. Help us to see, to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in our toil is a gift from you. We thank you so much for the humble way in which Jesus lived to show us how to live, but far more so that he could then die for us and be raised to life. Help us to live as followers of him and his wisdom and to do all things, whether we eat or drink, for your glory. Amen.